Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Tuesday, April 27th. As promised, we've got a two-mini break Tuesday for all of you listeners. On this episode, I want to recap all of the action that happened this past weekend on the ATP and WTA tours. It was a 12th title for Rafael Nadal in Barcelona. He looked fantastic in an exceptional three-set final against Stefano Tsitsipas. Of course, Ashley Barty was able to capture another title here in 2021. She ends up in the winner's circle in Stuttgart. I want to talk about her performance, Arena Sabalenka making a final. I'm going to continue to make the case, folks, for Arena Sabalenka to win a Grand Slam, if not this season, at some point in the next three seasons. The numbers say it. The results say it. Certainly her week in Stuttgart, there were moments when she looked untouchable. I have to touch on that. Of course, at the 250 level, Serana Kirstea wins her first WTA title in 13 years. Matteo Berrettini back in the winner's circle for the fourth time in his career in Belgrade. Of course, last but certainly not least, we had another challenger title from Jensen Brooksby and Jensen, friend of the program here at Cracked Rackets. Uh, So I have to talk about his continued success because at this point, it's undeniable, folks. He is on his way to the top 100 and certainly his performance in Tallahassee showed us why he has had so much success here at the start of 2021. But again, those events going to be the focus of this first podcast on part two. I'm going to talk about the week we have this week at the start. We've got a couple of ATP events as the week goes on, the WTA action going to pick up. And I feel like that's a nice break for us tennis fans. We needed a staggered start. We needed an easy Monday, easy Tuesday to ease our way into another fantastic week of tennis across the professional tennis world. Of course, there's also some fantastic college tennis going on. We here at Crack Rack so excited to be hosting a Level 1 USTA Junior National event starting this Saturday and going through uh, the middle of next week. I believe the GOAT, Colette Lewis, is going to be coming down to Indianapolis to cover the event. I am certainly excited to get the chance to speak with her in person. I am sure we're going to have her on the podcast at some point during the event. So just a sneak peek of what's ahead for all of you listeners. I also, at the top of today's podcast, have to talk about a professional experience I had this weekend that would not have happened without the endless support we received from all of you Cracked Rackets listeners from our Patreon family. Of course, the opportunity I'm discussing is the fact that I got to appear on Tennis Channel Live, the Tennis Channel National, I suppose, TV broadcast. Uh, It was my first appearance on national TV. It was a whole 
whole bunch of fun. And of course, I have to talk about that. I have to help. Uh, I have to, I suppose, thank some people who helped make that happen. So that's the agenda here on part one of the podcast. Talk about that experience, recap all of the championship weekend action. And then later on in the day on our second episode, you'll hear more about the week ahead. Of course, the reason we're able to all to do all of this, I should say, day in, day out here at Cracked Rackets, as I mentioned, is because of the endless support we get from all of you listeners, the support we get from our Cracked Rackets Patreon family, and of course because of the support we get from our friends at Midwest Sports. It's now officially outdoor tennis season. If you haven't upgraded your equipment, you need to maybe tighten your strings by a pound or two, maybe loosen them depending on what part of the country you are in. Rest assured, any advice you need, any gear you need about what you should be doing this spring, this summer, you can receive from our friends at Midwest Sports. You go to MidwestSports.com. Not only will you have the chance to interact with the kindest, I would say most knowledgeable staff in the business, you'll also have the opportunity to find the best gear at the best prices. You use our promo code CR15, you'll get 15% off your order. Free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. And best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. Again, MidwestSports.com. That promo code is CR15, which will let them know you we sent you there as well. We are so grateful for the continued support from our friends at Midwest Sports. The least we can do, ask you to support them as well. So, MidwestSports.com. The promo code is CR15. With that in mind... Let me just talk quickly about my Tennis Channel live appearance. A huge shout-out to Crack Racket CEO Dalton Thieneman, who sometimes I take some unnecessary shots at here on the podcast. It's all in good fun. You guys know that's the way I show affection to the people that I love, but sincerely, that opportunity would not have arisen without his endless work behind the scenes. I suppose it's good news for all of us here at Crack Rackets because we want to sustain this enterprise moving forward that I have taken the podcast hosting responsibilities away from him that now he does operate behind the scenes, but there is no one you want in your corner uh, fighting for you more than Dalton Thieneman. So a huge shout-out to him for helping to make that happen. A huge shout-out to uh, all the people at Tennis Channel who were willing to have me on the show. Obviously, I got the chance to interact with Noah Eagle, uh, the host uh, for Tennis Channel Live, uh, or I should say one of the hosts for Tennis Channel Live, who is a professional's professional, and it was fun. excuse me, to get the chance to go behind the scenes, to see how it all operates, to be on a broadcast, to see them, you know, transition from segment to segment, to see them prepare for commercial breaks, the transitions in and out. It was a learning experience. And then it was the thrill of a lifetime. And you Crack Rackets fans are too accustomed to hearing me discuss my club tennis days. I'm not going to do that now. I'm going to say this, and it's a thought I think you will all be familiar with, is that I love to compete. I always have the thrill of playing those tennis matches is a thrill. I will continue to chase throughout the rest of my life that adrenaline rush, that thought of, okay, there's something on the line here. And for me, that's why I always liked playing tennis in a team's fashion. Obviously, I played a lot of, I don't know why I say obviously, it's not like my career is public. I play played a lot of doubles, but also I played, whether it was for my high school team or my club tennis team in Michigan, the the key word there is team. I got the opportunity to play tennis in the team format. That's why I fell in love with it. 
Um, all of that is to say, that was a bit of a tangent there. I was like, what was my point? My point is, that was the thrill for me. That's why I fell in love with tennis, is getting the chance to compete, to have that opportunity to win, you know, not just for yourself, but for others as well. And the reason I brought up Dalton at the start is going on Tennis Channel Live, it wasn't just for me. It was for all of the work Dalton does, all of the work super producer Daniel Westoff does. There's a reason I give him a shout-out at the end of every show. None of this stuff happens without the tireless work he puts in behind the scenes and puts up with all of my nonsense. I've mentioned this fact before. Imagine editing my voice all day, seeing my face on video all day, seeing my face on your big computer screen that you're using to edit all day, and then walking out of your room and realizing that I live across the hall as your roommate. And he puts up with my nonsense day in, day out. The jokes that don't make it onto the podcast, and I know I say a lot of unfunny ones, but the ones that are truly too unfunny or too vile to be said publicly, uh, he's the recipient of most of them. And there's no one who's quicker to say, Alex, that's not going to work. And he says it in a loving way. Again, I just, he has my back. I have his. Shout out to Westoff. Shout out to Jamie McDonald. I'm not going to give the full rant on Jamie like I did Dalton and Westoff because if I do, this podcast will go three hours. I will say he knows how valuable he is to me. Everything I said about Westoff and Dalton applies to him, probably a little bit more so because, you know, I don't live with him. I don't see him as much. So sometimes he gets a little bit more animosity perhaps than the other two. And he just he says, Alex, shut up. Like he just puts up with it. He never takes it personally. Again, that's the sort of people you want to work with the team we have here at Cracked Rackets and obviously it was a thrill for me to get to text my grandmothers my mom I think every Gruskin or Merkel which is my mom's maiden name to that still exists tuned into Tennis Channel on Sunday afternoon but yeah to get the chance to talk about Rafa to get the chance to talk about Ashley Barty to get the chance to be myself and introduce our Cracked Rackets brand to a broader audience that was the opportunity of a lifetime and I felt that adrenaline rush again because it felt like I was doing it for Dalton for Jamie for Westoff and it was awesome and of course I don't get that opportunity without all of you continuing to tune into the podcast driving the numbers obviously we're part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network they see those numbers it's part of the reason why they were willing to have us on so all I can ask is that you continue to listen continue to subscribe continue to engage with what we're doing here at Cracked Rackets it is so I'm so grateful for it because it has afforded me the opportunity to do something I dreamed about and I've said it before this podcast was founded on my couch in my college apartment as a senior when I was trying to figure out how am I going to keep tennis in my life moving forward because I really didn't want to have to feed balls to be able to get my tennis fix and because of you the listeners I've been able to get my tennis fix and then some so immensely grateful for all of you what an opportunity it was thank you to Noah thank you to all the producers again everyone at tennis channel who helped to make it possible Uh, it was awesome And it was really fun to be there on Sunday because I had the opportunity to talk about some really cool matches. And with that in mind, that, folks, was a Noah Eagle segue into our topics for today's podcast. And let's start a little bit of a flipping of the script with the action in Barcelona because, folks— Rafael Nadal is now 66-4 and in his career in, uh, in this Barcelona event. He wins his 12th title at the event. The crazy thing is Rafa has now won 12 titles at multiple events, right? And, of course, they are all on clay, and he continues to solidify his—it's not even a case anymore, just his place, not his case, his place as the greatest clay court player in men's tennis history. And, look, I mean— 
for Rafael Nadal, who was tested early in this event, right? You look at the way he was able to rip through it. He three sets against Ivashka. He objectively just wasn't playing well in the match. He didn't have a rhythm, and he was able to hold serve. He was able to win a lot of points on his first serve, but Ivashka was able to attack his second serve, and then Ivashka was able to attack his return because Rafa's returns were sitting short early in the week in the court, and then that second set, Sitsi, uh, excuse me, that second set Nishikori played in the round of 16, where he was just taking everything Nadal hit early down the line, beating Nadal to the spot. You just aren't accustomed to seeing Rafa look that vulnerable on a clay court, but. As the week got on, it got better and better for him. And, you know, Cam Norrie in the quarterfinals, that was a good opponent because to beat Nadal, and it was funny, I was asked this question on Tennis Channel Live, what do you do to beat Rafael Nadal? If I had the answer to that, I would not be hosting a podcast. I would probably be the wealthiest and most infamous man in tennis because if you had the answer for how to beat Rafael Nadal on clay, you're probably qualified to be the best coach in professional tennis. You should probably be coaching Djokovic, Nadal, Halep, Serena, whomever it may be. If you can have that answer, what other answers can you solve? But there absolutely is some truth to you have to be decisive. You have to have the big weapon or you have to be Novak Djokovic, which of course you can't ask anyone else to be because there's only one Novak Djokovic. But, you know, in Monte Carlo, what did Andre Rublev do to win that three-set match against Nadal? He was aggressive. He looked for his opportunities to play plus one tennis. When Nadal left the ball short, there was no hesitation. Rublev said, all right, it's forehand time. And thankfully, Andre Rublev's the sort of guy, thankfully, I don't know why I'm thankful for it, but thankfully for him, you know, that's always Rublev's mindset, not just against Nadal, but that's why he was well-suited to win that match because he played aggressive. He was absolutely decisive in looking to take it to Nadal. Nishikori was able to do that. Ivashka was able to do that a little bit, but of course Nadal just really didn't have his rhythm in this match. But Cam Norrie was a good opponent for Nadal because that's not Cam Norrie's game. He wants to work the point. He wants to move you around the court, open up space for himself before beating you to the spot, before not necessarily you know overwhelming you with pace. And I mean, good luck overwhelming Rafa physically on a clay court. Good luck moving him around the court. You offer him a split second, he gets into those patterns, inside out, inside out, inside in forehand, or backhand cross court, backhand cross court, backhand down the line to try and bait you into hitting to his forehand. And of course, for Rafa, you know, he's gotten more decisive as well. He's gotten more effective on serve as his career's gone on. And I think that manifested itself a lot in that Carino Bustos semifinal when it was a 3-2 and two victory for Nadal. He made 63% of his first serves, won 77% of the points on his first serve, saved three of the four break points he faced. He was able to convert, I believe, on four of his 10 break point chances, wins two-thirds of his second serve points, uh, return points, and 49% of his return points in general. You know, that's a vintage Rafael Nadal. And before I even get into the final, because I want to use that as well as a segue into talking more about Stefano Tsitsipas. You look for Rafael Nadal. For his career, he has an 85.9 hold percentage in this 2021 season. And over. I, I really want to extend over 2020 and 2021 because he's only played 13 matches here in 2021. But he has a career hold percentage of 85.9%. Since the start of 2021, he's at 87.3%. He has a career break percentage, how frequently he's breaking serve, of 33.5%. By the way, that's top three in ATP Tour history. Since the start of 2020, he's at 
35.1%. So his hold percentage and his break percentage since the start of 2020 are better than they were throughout the course of his career. And are they his prime numbers? No. You look back to that 2010 season when he went 71-10, and 10, he held serve 90.1% of the time. Now, his break percentage was only 293 but it can afford to be a little bit low, uh, lower when you're holding 90% of the time. But that was a different Rafa. That was a different beast. You can just see, you know, that I those numbers manifest themselves. That's why he's been able to sustain this level of play for so long because he's just become more efficient. And against Tsitsipas, that was the name of the game. For Rafa in the match, he saves 11 of the 13 break points he faced on multiple occasions. First set, he's down a break for the majority of the set, right? Didn't get the break back until four all. And then from there, kind of ran away with the set. I believe one for straight games to close it out after being down 4-2, but then was down a break in that third set as well and was able to quickly get it back. And just for Rafa, we've said it all before, and this is why we don't talk big three that often on these shows, because what am I going to tell you listeners that you don't already know? But it's very clear, and it's it's become sort of a joke, right? Complimenting Rafa, oh, he's an underrated volleyer. He's become so underrated, he may even be overrated, but you know, then again, Rafael Nadal's not overrated at anything he does on a tennis court. He's so much more effective now at picking his spots to move forward, at understanding, oh my god, my forehand yanked him off the court, the heaviness of my ball. He's going to be lucky to get that ball back over the net, let alone put it with depth or pace anywhere. If I just move forward to the net, I'm going to take so much time away. All I have to do is make the volley to win the point. It's just those little things or you know, in this match, just not being afraid to hit to the Tsitsipas forehand and just, you know, keeping Tsitsipas on the move more than anything else, excuse me, because if you give Tsitsipas time to sit in the center of the court with how decisively Tsitsipas is playing right now, with how aggressively he's hitting his forehand and looking to move forward, it makes sense, you know, that Rafa was able to come back and make the match physical. And again, you'd think on a clay court with the heavy topspin of the Rafa forehand that it would overwhelm the one-handed backhand of Stefano Tsitsipas. That was not the case in the slightest. Tsitsipas was excellent in this match. And to be honest, the match was on his racket. And you look for Tsitsipas, the flip sides, his stats from the match. He makes 62% of his first serves wins, 74% of his first serve points. When he was able to play plus one tennis, be the aggressor, he was able to hit through Rafa. And that's a development, folks. Do you know how hard it is to hit through Rafa at any point, let alone on a clay court? When Tsitsipas was connecting cleanly with his plus one forehand or working that, you know, inside out, inside out, inside in forehand combo himself, or just even in this match comfortably hitting through his backhand cross court, using the topspin of Rafa's forehand and taking the ball early on the rise and just driving through it. That's the sort of strength he has now as an athlete. The problem for him was, you know, when Rafa could get him stretched on that second serve, he only won 43.5% of the second serve points. He had a million break point chances and wasn't able to convert them. There are a couple of volleys and a couple of inside-in forehands he yanked that he's going to want back. But he was constantly, again, going for his chances, playing to win. I can't fault Tsitsipas at all for his effort. And you look for Tsitsipas, who, again, won, what was it, 14 uh, plus, or 4 plus 5 is 9, 8. 
19 minus the one retirement. So 17 straight sets on clay heading into this final in Barcelona and really should have won that first set and probably won this match in straight sets and put himself in a position to win all three of these sets, fought off a couple of match points in the third as well, was able to extend it to five all and just, again, you look... For Stefano Tsitsipas, the numbers speak for themselves. He's 42-15 and 15 in his last 52 weeks since 2019. Stefano Tsitsipas, 108-45 and 45 overall. He's now 35-9 and nine on clay courts since 2019, and I mentioned this a little bit last week. Those losses have now come twice to Rafa, twice to Djokovic, once to Rublev, once to Sinner, once to Medvedev, once to Wawrinka, and then Struff as well. All of losses not to Novak or to Rafa were in three sets. So A, you have to be either Rafa or Novak to beat him on clay, or B, expect a three-set match. That's how good he's been on clay. And again, I have the numbers here to compare his hard court and clay court performances. His serve is equally effective on the two surfaces between 2018, uh, between since 2019, I should say. Now, you know, his hold percentage drops 3.5%, but you look at the numbers, they're pretty stable. You know, his first serve percentage equal on the two surfaces, so there's no uh, outlier there. He wins 76.3% of his first serves versus 72.7 on clay courts. That's first split is hard versus clay. Second serves, he wins 55% on hard, 53.8 on clay. Hold percentage, 87% on hard, 83.5 on clay. He's winning 68.6% of his service points on hard, 65.9 on clay. Here's where the big jump comes, though. His break percentage goes from 21.7 to 29.6. That means he goes from being a 37th ranked returner in the ATP top 50 to being a top 15 guy. He goes from being, you know, again, someone who can have his backhand attacked by pace to someone who has time now to run around that ball, hit a forehand, be the aggressor in his return games as well. And when he plays on his front foot, he is as good as any player in the tennis world. You look at Tennis Abstract's ELO ratings right now, Stefano Tsitsipas, number, uh, I believe, uh, four, I want to say, overall right now behind just Medvedev, Djokovic, and Rafa. You look on Clay court Tsitsipas number three now uh, behind just Djokovic, uh, Djokovic, excuse me, behind just Nadal and Dominic Team. You look here in 2021, Stefano Tsitsipas at 25 and six is your number one player by Tennis Abstract's ELO rating, again, based on just 2021 results, and it makes sense. He's tied with Andre Rublev. They're both 25 and six, but Tsitsipas has now beaten Rublev. You know, he's won a clay court title in uh, here in Monte Carlo, makes a final in Barcelona, quarterfinal in Miami, semifinals at both the French Open and the Australian Open. He's been that good of late. Uh, He is unequivocally one of the five best players in tennis. He is a threat, not just to do well, make the second week, make us run to the quarterfinals or semifinals. He could very well win the French Open, folks. I talk about that list of players all the time. You know, who are who are the list of guys in the top 16 and women in the top 16 in both hold percentage and break percentage? Because usually that list is only five or six players, and those are the players who have had the best results on tour over the past 52 weeks. Tsitsipas, does not qualify for that list because there's a little bit of noise for him early in that last 52 weeks, but in 2021, he would qualify for that list. There's a reason he has gone from being, you know, top 10. I mean, 
The truth is he's been this guy now for 52 weeks. The, the numbers speak for themselves. 45-11 and 11 is absolutely ridiculous. Stefano Tsitsipas in wins over. And, I mean, it was a gauntlet these past two weeks. He's earned wins over Karatsev, Garin, Rublev, Munar, Dimonauer, FAA, Sinner, all of those players excluding, but Munar's a top 20 guy in clay court ELO, but all of the other guys, top 20 players overall in ELO rating. That's how good Stefano Tsitsipas has been over these past two weeks. He can win the French Open. Of course, the guy he's going to have to go through is Rafael Nadal, who's now 25-6 and six since the tour resumed in August. His six losses, Rublev, Tsitsipas, Medvedev, team, Zverev, and then that match to Schwartzman in Rome, which of course he avenged in Roland Garros when he beat Schwartzman in straight sets in the semifinal. But I mean, those two guys set the standard. They are the two best players right now in the world on clay, and that conversation includes Novak Djokovic, who we, oh, well, you know, we haven't seen Dominic Team, who's still injured, which is why Tsitsipas, in my opinion, is the next best guy right now on clay. And we'll talk about Djokovic in Istanbul momentarily, Istanbul, excuse me, in Belgrade momentarily, but again, those two guys, Nadal, he earned that title. He is the front runner entering the French Open. My next favorite until we see team play is Stefano Tsitsipas. He has been that good. Of course, they weren't the only guys to excel in Barcelona. I mentioned Sinner, uh, who reaches the semifinal here, and for him to reach another semifinal at the Masters level, you look now for Yannick Sinner. Uh, over his last 52 weeks, he's 34-14, and 14, and of course, that includes the final in Miami just a few weeks ago. He now here beats RBA. He beats a worn-down Andre Rublev, but he still beats Andre Rublev before bowing out to Tsitsipas. He was a quarterfinalist at last year's French Open, and you look at just this sample size for him on clay now. We made the round of 16 in Rome last year before losing in three to Dimitrov, actually beat Tsitsipas during that run at the French Open. He beats Goffin. He beats Zverev before losing to Rafa, and honestly played Rafa about as close as anyone did at last year's French Open in the quarterfinals. It's a small sample size, but you look for him now in his career in ATP Tour level matches on clay courts. Yannick Sinner, 14-9 and nine overall, but you look at him, you know, 2020-2021, he was 7-3 and three last year, 4-2 and two now to start his year here. That win over RBA was really impressive. His two losses to Tsitsipas and Djokovic, that is a gauntlet of, you know, a schedule thus far, but... His ground strokes just work. He, his ball explodes through any court. The surface doesn't matter. He plays on his front foot. He's a comfortable mover on the surface as well. His backhand was more dynamic than Andre Rublev's, and his forehand could match him stroke for stroke. And it's just, you know, it's crazy because Sinner's still only 19 years old, and he gets better legitimately in every match he plays. So a great week for him. Another great week for Carreno Busta, who's now 27-12 and 12 since the tour resumed in August, and clearly the 29-year-old is in the prime of his career. He's now won. Uh, you look over these past couple of seasons, his steady progression, you know, in 2017 for uh, for Pablo Carreno Busta, he ends up winning 58% of his matches, 36 and 26. The next year, 2018, 31-22, 58% again. The next year, 30-22, 58% again. But now you look over these past 
you know, two seasons. He was 20 and 12 last year. He's 13 and 5 to start this season. He's won 69% of his matches over these last 52 weeks, and that includes, you know, the run to the U.S. Open semifinal where he beats Shapovalov. Of course, he was the recipient of the Djokovic incident, but probably should have beaten Zverev, but ultimately couldn't in that semifinal. And, you know, despite a loss like that, he bounces back and, you know, makes the quarterfinals of Roland Garros, beats everyone he should beat, including a very good win over Roberto Bautista Gut before bowing out to Djokovic in four sets. You know, he wins Marbella a few weeks ago, lost in three to Casper Rudd in Monte Carlo the next week. But, you know, here, three straight weeks of play, Marbella, Monte Carlo, Barcelona. He comes back from a 5-2 deficit in the quarterfinals to knock off Diego Schwartzman. Crano uh, Busta is playing the best tennis of his career. And, you know, again, it's because he's so much more decisive now on his return of serve. And, of course, on these clay courts, you look at his splits in his career between hard court and clay. His break percentage, he's another guy. It jumps by, now it's not quite a pass jump, but it jumps by 4% from 20, uh, 22% to 26%. You know, again, that is a noticeable jump. And why is it able to do that? The eye te- the numbers match the eye test. On these clay courts, he has that additional second to run around that ball, to hit his forehand, to hit the big drive on his return. You look for him again. That win over Schwartzman, he was just the more physical player down the stretch, more decisive, and he beats the guys he should beat in Zapata Morales and Jordan Thompson. And now Again, it, it hasn't been the toughest strength of schedule for him that Schwartzman you know, wins over Schwartzman and Munar. He's also got to win over Hatchinoff, but outside of that, all players outside of the top 50. You know, he lost to Rude, three-set match, played Schwartzman, three-set match. Both of those guys, three of the or two of the 15 to 10 best clay court players in the world, and he's playing them to three sets, and then, you know, obviously he bows out to Rafa, but he... I would be surprised if he doesn't make the round of 16, and it should shock no one if he's quarterfinals maybe even further because we've seen him do it before at this year's French Open. But again, those were your weekend uh, matches. I talked about it last week, but you know the quarterfinalists, Nori, FAA, Rublev, Schwartzman, they were all fantastic this week as well. And overall, it was a really, really fun 500-level event in Barcelona. It feels good to have Rafa back in the winner's circle on a red clay court. It just feels like all is right in the tennis world. Who's your trusted source when it comes to your facility questions, concerns, and needs? Ours is Hard True, the world's largest manufacturer of tennis court surfaces, equipment, and accessories for over 90 years. Partner with their trusted team of experts, along with collegiate greats Jamie Loeb, Alex Rybakov, and Dustin Taylor to bring the surface provider of over 30 professional events annually to your facility. Whether it's the red clay of the Houston ATP, the green clay courts of the Charleston WTA, or the official hard court of World Team Tennis, Hartrue has you covered. If you're looking to build a court, convert a hard court to clay, or simply resurface your hard court, work together with Hartrue in their mission to lead the tennis industry by creating better places to play. To learn more about their state-of-the-art surfaces, along with their catalog customizable on-court accessories, check out hardtrue.com or call 877-442-7878 today. That's hardtrue.com or 877-442-7878 today. 
Let's move on now to the ATP action in Belgrade. I'm not going to spend as long on this event as I did in Barcelona, but it was certainly exciting to watch Matteo Berrettini, Aslan Karatsev, Novak Djokovic, and I do want to give a shout-out to Taro Daniel as well, compete this weekend in Belgrade. Probably without, you know, it was a 7-6 in the third final, Berrettini over Karatsev, but we probably have to start with that Karatsev-Djokovic semifinal what an outstanding match. And look, Djokovic had break leads over Karatsev, I believe, in both the first and second sets. And two all in the third had a bunch of break point chances on Karatsev to take a 3-2 lead. Ends up getting broken in that next service game. Funny how frequently that happens. But this was just physical, you know, tennis at its finest. And this was also an exceptional contrast of styles because, of course, Karatsev, you know, he's so smooth out there on the court, makes everything look so easy, sliding into his shot, taking the ball early, hitting these ridiculous one-handed half volleys when he's approaching the net and you get a ball at his feet or he wants to just take a ball kind of on the rise to throw off your rhythm. He's just really coordinated. He's one of those guys who feels the ball really well around the court and then uses his momentum, uses his uh, body weight to take the ball early, drive that ball through the court. And look, he recognized early on Novak doesn't have the weapons to hit through me. And if I am patient and disciplined, Novak will eventually leave a ball on the shorter side, not like a vulnerable shot, but he'll leave something for Karatsev to attack. And Karatsev was so disciplined at keeping the ball in the middle third of the court in particular, because you don't want to give Djokovic angles to work with, right? He is the most dangerous player in tennis history in the outer thirds of the court. His flexibility, his mobility, down the line, short angle cross court, deep cross court, you name it, he can do it when he's on the defensive. But that's where Karatsev, again, was so decisive moving forward and, you know, keeping the ball in the center third of the court so that Djokovic didn't have angle to work with so that when Djokovic would try to go for something, it would be a little bit forced. And that's when the ball would be left a little bit short and present Karatsev opportunities to attack. And again, his ability to take the ball down the line, cross court, doesn't matter. He can do a little bit of everything. And you look for Karatsev in his match against Djokovic, you know, made 63% of his first serves, won 63.5% of his first serve points, but most impressively, saved 23 of the 28 breakpoint chances he faced. Uh, again, this is where, if you're like Aslan Karatsev, 46-11, and 11, you've won 81% of your matches since August, you're going to be a little bit ballsy. You're going to be confident going for your shots, playing to win. Down breakpoint, I don't care. I'm going to go big serve out wide, big forehand inside in, because that's what I have to do. It's if I'm if If I'm on my back foot, if I play not to lose, I am going to lose to Novak Djokovic. And look, Djokovic's level got better and better, and he he clearly didn't quite have his rhythm yet on the clay courts, and he just really is struggling. It's not as much absorbing pace. I think physically he does look good, and he looks comfortable moving, you know, incorporating the drop shot, moving the ball around the court, but he is struggling to win points easily on serve. He's clearly struggling to, you know, again, play plus one tennis. That's why he's incorporating so many drop shots to just try and get you off your rhythm, get you out of the center of the court, but 
Karatev was really, really disciplined, and for three and a half hours, he stood the test of the Novak Djokovic gauntlet, and you look on his return of serve, he went over 50% of his second serve points. He earned 16 breakpoint chances, which pales in comparison to the 20 Novak earned, but 16 breakpoint chances usually is going to get you the job done, and I mean, for Karatev, it's just... And then for him to bounce back, he lost that first set to Berrettini so quickly, 6-1, and it looked like he was just checked out physically in that final. looked like he had nothing left in the tank. And then he came out and broke Berrettini in Berrettini's first service game in the second set uh, for a uh, two-love lead. And, you know, that was, the I believe, the only break point. Uh, or, sorry, that was one of two break points. They might have traded break. Oh, they actually did trade breaks right away. And yeah, it was, again, he went down a break to Berrettini, got the break right back in the third set. I mean, look, that for Karatsev, who was clearly physically hurting, he just, he it didn't matter. He He's such a great competitor, and he's feeling it right now. There's a reason, Aslan Karatsev, you look at Tennis Abstract's numbers right now via ELO rating. Overall, uh, Aslan Karatsev is currently number 11 by ELO rating, which, again, he's played like, six weeks or three months now, I suppose, of ATP level events. A lot of that is based on his challenger success as well. You look for him from a clay court perspective, Aslan Karatsev, not quite a top 20 guy, but given his limited sample size that he's number 24 right now on clay court ELO ratings, speaks to the success he's had here early on. And then 2021, he's number five in ELO rating. And it makes sense. He's 20 and five here in this 2021 season. That's not far off the pace of the Tsitsipas's, Rublev's, and, uh, you know, Djokovic Nadal's of the world. And he's done it at the ATP level now. It's legit, folks. It's unlike anything we've seen in tennis history. And believe me, I've been racking my brain. I've seen similar jumps from, you know, high-level challenger success into the top 30. But normally that guy is 18, 19, 20, 21 years old. They're not Aslan Karatsev, who's, of course, doing this now at, I believe, age what? I think he was born in 93. So, yeah, he's 27, turns 28 in September. It's ridiculous. And, you know, he played a fantastic week of tennis, but shout out to Matteo Berrettini. Fourth title for him in his career. Continues to prove hardcourt clay, grass, doesn't matter. That big serve plus one forehand is going to be effective. It's going to transcend surface. Uh, He's now also quietly still 20-8 and in his last 52 weeks. That includes a run to the round of 16 in the U.S. Open where he lost in four to Rublev. It includes a run, you know, third round Roland Garros. He loses to qualifier Daniel Altmaier. You know, that hurts a little bit, but you look at that year. He made Rome quarterfinals before losing 7-6 in the third to Casper Rude. This year, he loses, you know, a close match to Bublik in Antalya, loses the final of ATP Cup to Medvedev, but beat Team Monfils and Bautista Agut at that event, loses to Tsitsipas in the round of 16 at the Australian Open this year after he had to withdraw with injury and, you know, didn't play between Australia and Monte Carlo because injuries have been a big part of his career. of his story of late, but for him to, you know, make the decision, say, I'm not going to play Barcelona. I'm going to go play Belgrade. I'm going to go be a higher seed, give myself an opportunity to play a bunch of matches this week. Straight set wins over Chechenato and Krajinovic, who was playing really well earlier in the week to get things started. And then, you know, three set win over a very much in form and feeling himself Taro Daniel before seven, six in the third win over Karatsev. I thought Berrettini's backhand actually did look much improved this week. He was much in that Karatsev 
Karatsev match because Karatsev was playing park the bus. He was hitting everything to the Berrettini backhand corner. At some points, he was, you know, rolling in his first serve 90 miles per hour, just making sure it went to Berrettini's backhand. Uh, and Berrettini got much more comfortable as the match went on, hitting through his backhand and just saying, okay, you know what? If you want to be patient and play to my backhand wing, I'll play that game with you. I'll play drives cross court, and then eventually I'm going to lull you to sleep and run around it and hit an inside out, inside out, inside in forehand combo or work in his slice as well. And, you know, he's a guy who slides out of his shot, not slides into them, but that's just because he's so freaking powerful. And his first step is effective on the clay as well. He moves well. The backhand looks better. He won over 80% of his first serve points for the week, which of course is going to be his calling card. He was only broken three times throughout the course of his four matches on the week. Berrettini was excellent. And it's just a reminder, he's going to be really good for a long time. Top 20 as long as he is healthy. His serve, his forehand, his athleticism, his creativity, his slice, his willingness to move forward, you know, all of it works. And of course, that, you know, backhand return is attackable, and it's not the most dynamic game. What's plan B for Matteo Berrettini? Not as clear as some of the other top guys, but plan A is super effective, and plan B is getting better, as I mentioned. So, great week for him, who you look at Tennis Abstract's ELO ratings right now. Uh, Berrettini feels a little undervalued, number 14 overall behind the, uh, it feels a little low for him to be behind Stan Wawrinka at this point, but you know you look via clay court ELO rating, Berrettini a little bit higher than that. He's at number 12. You look here in his yearly ELO rating, he's still going to be pretty low, right? Because he's only now won this first title, and he really hasn't played that many events, you'd think, but he's now up to number 8, 12-3 here to start the season. Again, it was the retirement in Australia that held him out more than anything. Uh, he's starting to play his best tennis. I mentioned that top 16 list. There are six men right now who are top 16 in both hold percentage and break percentage. Rafa, who is fifth in hold percentage and second in return percentage, by the way. That's freaking nuts. You also have Djokovic. You've got Zverev. You've got Medvedev. You've got Rublev. And you've got Aslan Karatsev, who continues his success. And then for Novak Djokovic, I mean, again, it's one loss. I'm not concerned. He's starting to look better and better. He, You could tell he was not happy with himself that to have lost that match on his home soil, on his stadium court. But if anything, that's just going to fuel the fire, and I am not concerned. Yes, Kowalczyk have beat him in a third set, but if that match had to go you know, one or even two more sets, I still think I like Djokovic on that occasion. So Djokovic knocked out, but certainly you look for him on Tennis Abstract's clay court ELO ratings. He's number four behind Tsitsipas. He's not going anywhere, folks. He is very much a threat come Roland Garros. And for Taro Daniel, shout out to him, 23-19 and 19 now in his last 52 weeks, makes his first ATP semifinal uh, since back in 2018 when he lost to Daniil Medvedev in the Winston-Salem semifinal. Did just such an excellent job all week, uh, you know, scrapping out the matches he had to play. You look for him on the week in terms of the wins he was able to to accumulate, he gets victories over Sosa, Millman, and Del Bonis, the last two in three sets. Was able to bounce back after getting blitzed in that first set against Berrettini, but Berrettini is just too much firepower in the end. But 
It was a really fun week of tennis in Belgrade, certainly considering we had a 500-level event going on simultaneously. It's a shout-out to the players for delivering a high-level performance, but... That's enough on the ATP action, and by the way, this is why we're delivering you a two-podcast Tuesday, because I knew I was going to go at least 30 minutes on the men, and I've got it. I would say probably another good 30 minutes here on the women as well. We'll start with the action in Stuttgart. Ashley Barty, folks, let's talk about numbers for her. And I know I mentioned some of these uh, a little bit last week, but it's worth just mentioning them again because of how exceptional she has been. She is now 79-17, and 17, an 82% win percentage since the start of the 2019 season. She's 20-3 and three overall here in 2021, the victory in Miami now the victory here in Stuttgart she's also 17 and 3 on clay since the 2019 season and you look for Ashley Barty here this week I mean it was such a well-rounded performance she you know is able to win about it says she did she really win a hundred percent of her first serves against Laura Siegemann there's a chance that's true and you look for Barty here on the week her in her four victories she won a hundred percent 78.9 percent 79 percent and 72.2 percent of her first serve points and you know, if you look for her, she was hovering around 46% on her second serve in uh, throughout the course of the week. And just she's able, she is one of, I mentioned the men's side. Let's look on the women's side. There are six women who are in, uh, is it six or is it seven? One, two, three, four, five, six. Six women who are in the top 16 in both hold and break percentage. Elisa Mertens, who ranks 16th in hold percentage, 9th in uh, break percentage. And by the way, she's the WTA wins leader. It makes sense. I've been looking for a stat that would have her amongst the elite of the elite. She belongs in this conversation. All of these names do. Mertens is your wins leader. Iga Sviantek, 15th in hold percentage, 2nd in break percentage. She was a French Open champion. Arena Sabalenka, who we'll get to in a second, is on this list. You also have Petra Kvitova, Garbine Mugarutha, and Ashley Barty, who's fourth in hold percentage, 14th in break percentage over the course of the last 52 weeks amongst top 50 players in the women's game and against Arena Sabalenka. Look, Sabalenka was having one of those weeks, and the speed of the indoor clay courts in Stuttgart were perfect for her game, and her athleticism means she can play her power tennis on clay courts and not worry as much as other power-based players because she's so comfortable moving on the surface. She's such a dynamic athlete, and when her first serve or her big aggressive returns are landing in the court, there's nothing her opponents can do. Case in point, Simona Halep, who was who, you know, hit Ekaterina Alexandrova off the court earlier in the week, who was exceptional in her first-round win as well, and it it just didn't matter because Sabalenka in the match hit through uh, Simona Halep. She won 73.5% of her first serve points, but 81% of her second serve points, she was she didn't allow Simona freaking Halep to break her serve and just, you know, and she kind of ran out of steam against Ashley Barty, but that's just because Ashley Barty put so many balls in play, and she's gotten so much better on her two-handed backhand side, just driving through that ball, particularly on the return of serve. That has been uh, one of her big improvements here this season. You look for Ashley Barty for her career, uh, her break percentage, 35.5. This season, it's 38.2%. Uh, it's because she's putting more returns in the court, and it's because she 
is just, again, her variety, uh, her ability to get the ball deep, her ability to, the second you give her a forehand, whether it's to, you know, flip the gears on you and go down the line and beat you to the spot or continue to play cross court with you or to go short angle or to incorporate the drop shot and her comfort moving forward. She can just do a little bit of everything and the numbers speak for themselves. We've talked about this before, the primes of the Federers and Serenas of the world, typically they're winning 80% of or more of their matches. They're making, you know, seven, eight finals, you know, sometimes even exceeding 10, you know, the best of the best are 10 to 15 finals. They're winning, you know, four to eight titles a season. That's what Ashley Barty's been doing since the start of 2019. She has statistically started to put together the sort of resume, the greats of the game, put together in the early parts of their prime. And it just makes sense because, again, her athleticism transcends surface much like Sabalenka's. The variety in her game just seems to work, frustrates opponents. She finds answers. She's able to find ways to stay alive in matches even when she's not playing her best or even when her opponent is playing their best. Case in point, Arena Sabalenka in that first set carried her form over from that Simona Halep match and was taken second and first serves early and just beaten Barty to the spot and playing aggressive, dictating tennis. And just, again, the match was on her terms, but Barty stood the course. She continued to get Sabalenka stretched and ultimately wore Sabalenka down. And, you know, again, for Ashley Barty, I mentioned the fact that she's one of those top 16 players in both categories. You look for ELO ratings now. Ashley Barty is currently number two behind Naomi Osaka, and it's only a six-point gap between the two of them, which is about as small of a gap as you will find in ELO rating between two players, particularly two players at the top. But you look across the board, it's just because uh, Naomi Osaka's ELO rating on hard courts is higher, is significantly higher, I suppose, than Barty's is right now. Now, Barty's higher on the other two surfaces, and there's a big gap between the two of them right now. And number three, Simone Halver, a relatively big gap. But she's number two on overall ELO rating in terms of clay court ELO rating. Ashley Barty now, or I, I, excuse me, in terms of yearly ELO rating, Ashley Barty's number one here in this 2019, uh, 2019, wow, 2021 season. She is 19 and three overall on the year. That's second, uh, third in wins behind Muguruza and Kuderman. Matova, uh, obviously, you look for her in terms of clay court elo right now. Ashley Barty trails just Simona Halep as the number two. She has now surpassed Iga Sviantek with her result here in Stuttgart. And look, in her mind, she's the defending French Open champion, as I've said before. She won that 2019 event, didn't play last year. I would say her Halep are my two favorites. I would say Iga Sviantek's just a slight notch below them because as excellent as she was last year, I need to see her repeat it again. But both Halep and Barty, who, and by the way, I'm not trying to take, I'm not taking anything away from Simona Halep, who just got blitzed by Sapolenka, who I'm going to get to one second. By the way, Sapolenka fourth right now in overall ELO rating according to Tennis Abstract. But Barty, Halep, those are your two favorites entering the French Open. This, you know, the faster clay courts work even better for Ashley Barty, but she's got the sort of weapons and athleticism again that even if you slow down the surface, it's not going to matter. She was fantastic this week. You look for her overall in her run to the title here. She's able to overcome the fact that she would, I believe, drop sets in her matches against Pliskova, Svitolina, and Sapolenka. Didn't matter. And that Svitolina match, by the way, 
absolutely delightful. And that's two matches in a row against Svitolina in Miami, and by the way, against Sabalenka in Miami as well. Uh, all of these players are in the mix. The margins between them, very, very thin. Svitolina just not able to make points quite easy enough for herself, uh, in particular, really needed to win that second set and had chances to do so. And, you know, she had the discipline to also you know, stayed the course with Ashley Barty. She didn't get frustrated by her slices. She didn't try to pull the trigger too soon. And again, I, I, I talked about it last week, but for Svitolina, her improvement on her first serve has afforded her a few more free points. It has allowed her to be a little bit more aggressive with her first shots. And she took her chances against Ashley Barty, but Barty just, she throws the kitchen sink at you. She's able to turn defense into offense, and then eventually, once you do wear down with her big first serve, with her plus one forehand, as I mentioned, she was winning about 77% of her first serve points on the week. She was sensational, and she deserved to end up in the winner's circle. You look for Ashley Barty now, and I may have just mentioned this earlier, so I apologize if I am repeating myself here, but you look at Tennis Abstract's ELO rating. She's number two overall behind Naomi Osaka. She trails her primarily in terms of their play on clay courts. Uh, Excuse me, in terms of their play on hard courts, the gap between them, just a mere six ELO rating points. That's about as thin of a margin as you'll find between any two players in the ELO ratings. Uh, She, by overall ELO, again, trails uh, trails only Naomi Osaka. In terms of clay court ELO rating, she's now surpassed Iga Svantec. She's number two, according to Tennis Abstract, trailing only Simona Halep. She's number one overall in 2021 ELO rating, and you look at her record overall here in 2021. Now, Ashley Barty uh, currently, I believe, uh, on this season. Let's see here. What is her record? 19-3. and three. That trails only Kudermatova and Muguruza, who have 20 and 21 wins, respectively. She, again, all the hoopla. I mentioned this on the Tennis Channel Live, so I'm not going to repeat the joke I made, but, you know, she belongs at the top of the women's game. She's a contender to win any event, and in my mind, and by the way, Simona Halep looked great this week. It was the indoor conditions. It was perfect for Sabalenka, who I'm about to get to, I promise. Uh, But for Ashley Barty, it's her and Halep. Those are your two favorites. Sviantek's a slight tier below, uh, but Barty was that good. She belonged in the winner's circle in Stuttgart. All right, now quickly on Arena Sabalenka, who I say it all the time. I'll say it again. When Jeff Sackman said it beautifully, when they induct the next member of Serena Williams' power tennis neighborhood, that person, you know, Serena, or he said it, Serena's going to find a key in the manager's office, the secret lock that opens the secret to all things power tennis, and that secret is going to be Arena Sabalenka. And I mean, to watch her blitz through Simona Halep, 6-3-6-2. To watch her, I think it dropped the first game against Annette Conteve and then rip off six in a row in that third set. Just when she's clicking, she's going to beat anyone. And her power tennis was exceptional. I mean, against Halep, she won 81.3% of her second serve points. Against Simona freaking Halep. And in that first set against Barty, she raced out to a 6-3 lead and was playing on her terms and was taking the return of serve early, aggressive down the line, inside in with her forehand on the ad side, or even ripping big cross court through the ball on that ad side. It was all working for her. And again, the the three sets she played, uh, the four sets she played consecutively, 6-1 over Conteve in the third, 6-3, 6-2 over Halep, 6-3 over Barty in the first. 
That's the reason Arena Sabalenka is currently number four on Tennis Abstract's Evo ratings because her best tennis is as good as anyone on tour. And you look for her now, she's 35-11 and 11 over her last 52 weeks. You look overall in terms of, again, more granular, granularly, there's a big word for you, at those at that 35-11 and 11 record. Overall, of those 11 losses, 10 of the 11 were in three sets. And, you know, all of them except to Azarenka, Pagula, and I believe Coco Goff, or excuse me, all of her losses except for Kaya Kanepi and Coco Goff were against players who are either top 15 players or Jess Pagula and Onjibor who have been top 15 players over the past really 15 months. And I mean, again, 35 and 11, 10 of your 11 losses are in three sets. You have to be one of the best players in the world to beat her right now. And her last five losses, Barty, Barty, Muguruza, Muguruza, Serena, all of them in three sets. You either have to be the best player in the world to beat her. And even if you are the best player in the world to beat her, you are probably still going to have a three set match because she's going to have 20 minutes where she just hits you off the court. And here's my comparison for you. Sabalenka, 13th in hold percentage, 16th in break percentage. Alex Zverev, 13th in hold percentage, 12th in break percentage. That's always going to be the parallel to me because they're both players who for 10 to 15 minutes in every match, you're just like, why aren't you the best player in the world? Why don't you do this point in, point out? You are better than your opponent when you play your best. And yet, you know, again, they haven't been able to do it seven matches in a row at the slam. They haven't always been able to do it in the biggest moments against the biggest opponents, but they're both so, 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 so good. And this is why I continue, well, less so Zverev now, but Sabalenka, this is why I'll continue to bring her up because her best tennis is that good, folks. She legitimately, I mean, she can out-hit anyone and she out-hit Halep on clay. She out-hit Barty first set. Now she ran out of steam, but she has gotten better and better and it's gonna happen. It's gonna click. And I just hope I'm able to predict when it is going to happen correctly because I'm down to be burned for the next 12 Grand Slams if on the 13th one I predict Arena Sabalenka and it finally happens. She's got that sort of talent. She was spectacular this week in what was, again, an excellent weekend of tennis in Stuttgart. All right, just a couple things to touch on, and then we'll wrap this first episode here on Tuesday. Let's talk about the action in Istanbul. Serana Kirstea earns her first title since 2008, second title of her career at the WTA level. She doesn't drop a set en route to her victory in Istanbul. You look for Kirstea throughout the week. It's not like it was a you know a joke of a draw. It's not like it was some fluke sort of event. She beats young, talented Russian Anastasia Potapova. She knocks off a top 12 player in tennis abstract ELO rating on clay in Fiona Farrow. She then knocks off big hitting Marta Kostyuk in 2021, or excuse me, 2020 WTA wins leader Elisa Mertens all without dropping a set. You look at what went well for her. It felt like all week long, whenever her serve got broken, she was immediately able to bounce back. She could hit through these courts in Istanbul, and it felt like the first set, first set in two games of all of her matches, she would play extraordinarily aggressive. And it helps when you know, you're know you winning those matches to maintain that aggression. But then that aggression hitting big down the line, big cross court. I thought the depth of her ground stroke more than anything else was the most impressive thing for the now 31-year-old, but, you know, for 
uh, her in particular. Then she started mixing in the drop shot, and she had a ton of success mixing in the drop shot against Mertens, who was doing her best to survive the first strikes of Kirstey and built a 5-2 lead in the final in that second set uh, of the match. Kirstey ultimately a 6-1-7-6 victory over Mertens, which followed up a 4-4 win, by the way, in the semifinal this weekend over Kostyuk. But, I mean, look... For Serana Kirstea, you look overall in her career now for the 31-year-old. She's 20-11 and 11 overall in her last 52 weeks. That includes a win at 100K in Dubai where she beat Krejcikova, Kociareta, Blinkova, Herzog, and Sinyakova. She made quarterfinals in the Australian Open warm-up before losing to Ann Lee, beat Teague and Kvitova before losing to Vandrusova in the Australian Open. She's lost back-to-back matches, second round to Kantave in Dubai and Miami now. The law, you know, now she wins the title here in Istanbul. She is back to number 58 now in the rankings, and you look for her, uh, that feels about right. Given that 2011, it's not a fluke run. I know that was a 100K title, but that list of players, Herzog, Sinyakova, Krejcikova, Kociareto, Blinkova, it's nothing to sniff your nose at. You know, that's nothing. That That is a player who's starting to play her best tennis again. And, you know, it started last year when she made third round U.S. Open, beat Kanta, beat an inform Mikhail, who had a big run at the Western Southern the week before, before losing 7-6 in the third to Karolina Mukova. You know, she followed that up, unfortunately, losses to Rabakina and Bedosa. But she is right there. She's starting to play her best tennis. She's healthy, most importantly. And again, her firepower, it's legit, folks. She hit through Elisa Mertens, who, by the way, accomplished everything she wanted to. This past weekend in Istanbul, she gets four matches under her belt. She's able to get a couple of good victories on the week over Sinyakova, over Kudermatova, played a three-set match early in the tournament as well. And look, her, you know, she struggled. She didn't have, she just really couldn't find a way to hit through Kirstea uh, and got a little tentative in that second set. Although, of course, you know, the way Kirstea was playing, I don't know what Mertens is supposed to do there. Like, she... You try to be too aggressive, you're going to make some errors, and that's not what you want to do because you feel like you can weather the storm against Serana Kirstea, but you really can't right now. That's how confidently, that's how well she is playing. She earned the title. It was a great week from Mertens, though. Great week for Kunamotova, protected seed. Lost the match to Mertens 1-4, but Mertens just outplayed her. That happens from time to time. I don't think there's anything to be disappointed about if you're Veronica Kunamotova. That was a fun and more competitive match than the 6-1, 6-4 scoreline reflected. Of course, for Marta Kostya, great result for her. Continued her ascent up the WTA rankings. You look for Kostyuk now with the semifinal. She is up uh, into the top 80 of the WTA rankings. Marta Kostyuk right now uh, currently sitting at, let's see, the WTA tab doesn't want to open for me, but when it does, it will tell me that Marta Kostyuk, and we're leaving all of this in because, again, it's a two-podcast Tuesdays, up to a new career high of number 76 in the live rankings, which is where she belongs. I knew it was top 80. Uh, she's probably a little bit higher than that that firepower it's going to win her matches over her career folks and so you look for Martha Kostyuk uh, a phenomenal week for her uh, certainly overall in uh, Istanbul and I think the first of many that power game much like I talk about with Arena Sabalenka I don't know if she quite has the athleticism of Sabalenka but that uh, it, it doesn't mean when I say the athleticism I mean the power the size just the way she, Sabalenka overwhelms you but 
Kostyuk's ball is equally explosive, and it's going to be fascinating. She's certainly someone third-highest-ranked under-19-year-old on the WTA Tour. She's someone we're all locked in on, certainly, as she moves through uh, the rest of this WTA season. With that in mind, let's talk about another young star rising right now in the professional tennis ranks. It's on the men's side, and it's a player we have spent so much time talking about here because his results have dictated that we do as much. Of course, I'm referring to 20-year-old Jensen Brooksby, who wins his second challenger title in the past two weeks, third challenger title on this 2021 season, as he ends up in the winner's circle. Four three-set wins to earn the title on the green clay of Tallahassee. You look at the run for him. He knocks off fellow talented young American Martin Dom, then beats number one seed Tiago Sabath-Vild, who won an ATP title on clay last year, beats Michael Moe in three sets, Fasundo Mina in three sets, then gets revenge over one of his few losses here this season. Bjorn Fertangela, who beat him in the final of the Cleveland Challenger. Brooksby gets a 6-3-4-6-6-3 victory. And look, Damian Kust talked about Brooksby at length on today's Great Shot podcast. And I know, you know, uh, David Gertler and I talked about him at length on Thursday. We will certainly talk about him at length again this week. Uh, but for, you know, Brooksby, I just 23-4. and four, your last four challengers, you win South Africa, finals of Cleveland, you win Orlando, win Tallahassee, four vastly different surfaces, the altitude of South Africa, indoor hard courts in Cleveland, outdoor fast in Orlando, now green clay in Tallahassee. Some ridiculous numbers on Jensen Brooksby just via ELO rating right now because I think all you guys will enjoy all these. And again, it contextualizes where he is at. Jensen Brooksby overall, not 2021-centric overall, up to number 45 now in tennis abstract ELO ratings. You want to look just 2021 results-centric. Brooksby number 26 on tennis abstracts ELO rating uh, via for this 2021 season. Je- Jeff Sackman and I were texting back and forth. He made the joke. He's the hardcore Sebastian Baez, who, by the way, is number 29 on the ELO rating. And you look at this grouping. It's a funny grouping. 25 Moonar. Let's just go from 24. 24 Popperin, 25 Moonar, 26 Brooksby, 27 Bublik. 28 Schwartzman, 29 Baez, 30 Rusevori, 31 Fritz, 32 Thomas Mahak, um, or Matchak. I, I forget how to pronounce it. Anyways, that's a really fun list to be on. And Jensen, look, he's 19 and th- or what, 24 and 3 in his last 52. It's like, I don't know what else you can say. And it's just, again, there, is there the big weapon, the glaring thing he does extraordinarily well? I would say yes. And it's his ability to compete, his ability to just stay on the court, make matches physical, put you in uncomfortable position, make that on-the-stretch backhand down the line or backhand cross-court that you just don't expect him to get to or hit that god-awfully ugly drop shot that is sneaky effective on his backhand wing and just, again, his length, his first step, his anticipation, his ability to move the ball around the court. It's a sneaky, heavy forehand, and he makes like 70% of his first serves, and he puts almost every return at a minimum in the court and then says, all right, I've made it in the court. Now, can you beat me? And at the challenger level right now, the answer to that question is no. These players can't beat him, and that is the ultimate compliment you can give a 20-year-old is that I now need to see you get pushed by the best players in the world because you're too good for the level of competition you're playing at and I need to see more and I'm not trying to put extraordinary uh, amounts of pressure on Brooksby because again 
friend of the program here at CR and, you know, still only 20 years old, but he's ready to be pushed at the ATP level. That's what I'm trying to convey is we've now seen it three consecutive months at the challenger level in his ranking now. He's into the top 175 for the first time. Of course, I want to continue to see him excel at the challenger level, particularly in non-hard court events. And I still think there's a lot he needs to work on. That serve is going to get attacked. And, you know, the pace, depth of his usual rally ball, it's not overwhelming. If he's not careful, the players with big weapons on the tour, they're going to be aggressive. They're going to go for those balls down the line. And he doesn't have an overwhelming first step. He's not a, you know, a ridiculous springy athlete. He's not a Tiafo or a Tommy Paul type of athlete, but he, he anticipates so well. He's a comfortable mover. Certainly, it's more in the Nakashima mold of like it's never going to be an issue for them. And I want to see him pushed by the biggest weapons, and I want to see how he continues to play on non-hardcourt surfaces. But he's answered every question anyone had about him coming into the season. And, you know, it, we definitely talked about it here at Cracked Rackets. Was it Korda, Nakashima, and Brooksby, or was it Korda, Nakashima, and now it's time to see wait and see from Brooksby? Well, we know the answer. It's Korda, Nakashima. And Brooksby. Those are your next next gen Americans. You want to throw the Zane Cons, Martin Doms, Sfida, Zach Sfida man at me. I'll accept those names as well. There's some names in college I also particularly like. Cannon Kingsley, Alex Kavasovich, of course, my boy, Will Blumberg. But yeah. I mean, Jensen Brooksby, if you're making a list of talented young Americans who you're gonna need to follow over the past decade, make sure he's on that list. Otherwise, respectfully, I don't think many tennis fans are going to take the list seriously. But with that in mind, by the way, Jensen Brooksby, one of the many players to have been signed up, I suppose, for college tennis to have earned an ATP victory. That was a poor segue. That segue won't earn me a return to Tennis Channel Live. But some fun news we broke, fun news, I suppose, good news we broke here at Cracked Rackets. We learned today that the NCAA Tennis uh, Selection Committee has a officially announced that they will deviate from their standard practices to select this year's field for the team and individual NCAA championships. Now, we will get into the details when Matt Stokowiak and Chris Helioris join me on this week's uh, College Tennis Great Shot podcast episode, but just uh, what they're going to be using this year. It's going to be the same foundational criteria, head-to-head, win-loss record, strength of schedule, common opponents, significant wins, eligibility, and availability of student-athletes, and by the way, criteria for both the team and and individual events I'm talking about, but however, the the committee is going to be able to identify those teams and individuals, aka the Big Ten, who might be adversely impacted by the lack of non-conference scheduling and therefore underranked, and place them within a recommended range and evaluate them individually against other teams or individuals within that range to ensure they are placed in the appropriate position within the bracket. Number two, they're going to continue to use the ITA computer rankings, but weight the rankings less than in a traditional year. They're going to monitor conferences through committee members. They're going to review conference rankings of teams, singles, and doubles players provided by each conference. And then most importantly, they're going to review past brackets for informational purposes. Those are all suggestions and topics that have been floated around all season long. We've discussed them on the Great Shot Podcast. Have to give a shout out to the committees. Of course, would we have liked this announcement in January? Yeah, there's no denying that, but they got the right decision. And guess what? If it takes a little bit of time to get to the right decision, that's okay. And that's what this was, the correct decision. And again, 
again, I wanted to give, uh, I will give my extended thoughts on this topic on this week's Great Shot podcast, but I did want to briefly mention that to any of you listeners who are interested in that sort of information. But again, that is part one of our two mini break Tuesday here at Cracked Rackets. We have recapped all of Championship Week and it's now time to turn our attention to the week ahead of us for us tennis fans. Of course, if you have missed anything that has happened across college level, challenger level, ATP and WTA tour level events over the past week. You can catch up on everything at our website, crackrackets.com. You want to read more about Brooksby? Well, David Gertler wrote about him for our website today, so be sure to go check that out. Be on the lookout for more stuff from Damian Kust, our entire Crack Rackets team, of course, for the more immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. We are at Crack Rackets. You want to message me directly? I am at Great Shot Pod. Of course, like, great subscribe, review, to this podcast, the Great Shot Podcast, Cracked Interviews Podcast, where we were joined by Tennessee Associate Head Coach James Mackay to discuss his team's SEC Conference Championship, as well as their plans for the postseason moving forward. Again, to like, rate, subscribe, review all of the shows, share them with your friends. A shout out, as always, to super producers Max Fliegner and Daniel Westoff for the of an editing job they do day in day out a shout out as well to our friends at midwest sports go to midwestsports.com use that promo code cr15 to get 15 percent off your order but with that in mind for my wonderful super producers max fligner and daniel westoff our friends at midwest sports and all of us here at both cracked rackets and the tennis channel podcast network i'm your host alex gruskin we will see you all later in the day but for now you know what we say that's the break we will talk to you all later thanks everyone Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com.